Welcome to Friday in D.C. Signal to Noise. I'm John Harris, News Director for Farm Journal, joined, as always, by Jim Weissmeyer, who is the Policy Prognosticator for Pro Farmer. And, Jim, a special edition today um, in, in that we're going to have a conversation with Congressman Glenn G.T. Thompson, who was the ranking Republican on the House Agriculture Committee. Um, as you and I sit here and talk Tuesday afternoon, we actually had the conversation with uh, Congressman Thompson earlier this morning and uh, cover just the, the, the complete waterfront of, uh, of topics, including the, the, the COVID aid package, the partisanship that has broken out in the House Ag Committee over that, um, immigration, uh, the ranking member's priorities for the House Ag Committee, just a whole bunch of things uh, that he got into with us, yes, Jim. Absolutely, including a timeline for the next farm bill. I'll leave it up to uh, uh, you, you know the interview for the dateline on that one. Yeah, indeed. So we'll have that coming up in just a little bit. But first, we've got some other issues that we want to cover, Jim, including um, Tom Vilsack this week officially sworn in as USDA secretary. Um, that really kind of opens the floodgates, doesn't it, for a lot of action on some things we've been waiting on? Yes. And he's not physically going to be in Washington until sometime in, uh, I think, by mid-March. He's been working virtually out of his house. But uh, he's in there. He's been having, in fact, he met with his climate team, you know, virtually, uh, you, you, you know, today, John. But uh he, he hit the ground literally running, and he gave a presser uh, earlier this week, and he went through a, a number of issues, uh, the climate change, uh, saying that USDA needs more funding and personnel. He's going to be looking into that as he deals with the you know, fiscal year 2021 budget, but really starts working on the fiscal year 2022 budget that starts, you know, this October 1. But I thought his most interesting comments were, uh, too, on the CFAP. Uh, this is what we call CFAP AA, additional assistance. Remember the up to $2.3 billion? Uh, they've got a pause on that until Vilsack and his people review it. But he did, he did reveal that that the Iowa delegation has asked that the program include custom cattle feeders and that a number mm. a, a number of farm state lawmakers have complained about producers they believe were improperly left out either this one or a prior CFAP, uh, you know, program. So that at least signals to me that we could see some changes, John, in what we're calling in what they're calling CFAP hyphen AA. And would that be in addition to the money that's already allocated or was allocated under the Trump administration for contract producers? Well, it could it could modify that. You you recall that, you know, what, a little over 90 percent were for contract producers, primarily poultry. I think they're going to be looking into that. Uh, hmm. And I don't know about the dollar amount. I keep hearing maybe they found some more money. So I, I do expect some changes because Vilsack kept on saying he wants the C CFAP program be made equitable. There's that word that keeps coming up almost okay. every single day by almost everyone in the uh, you know Biden uh, administration. Equity, equitable, um, you know, uh, for the first time, I heard Vilsack use the word food 
uh, nutrition security rather than food security. So there's little shifting under under how they're talking uh, that. But he also said that USDA Inspector General, uh, you know, Phyllis Fong, uh, told the House Ag Appropriations Subcommittee earlier this week that her office is investigating reports of improper payments for uh, CFAP. Really? So that's going to be interesting to uh, follow as well. Uh, that is. And uh, the other part piece of this is that CFAP 3, uh, the part that was uh, approved by Congress in December, is also effectively frozen um, as USDA has not put forth rulemaking on that yet. Um, uh, do we get closer to that becoming uh, freed up with uh, Vilsack now being in, in the chair at USDA? Yeah, I, I think I think we should hear it, uh, you know, pretty pretty soon, because I, there, as we keep on saying, that was legislative language. So I don't know how much wiggle room they have on that one. You know, recall, that's the twenty dollar uh, per acre uh, you know, general payment for eligible crop producers and things like that. I really don't think that they have much wiggle room, but we'll see, because this is an administration that likes a lot of changes. So we're going to see. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Theo asks on the comments, um, what states would be most affected by the custom cattle feeding? I haven't seen much in the Midwest of that. No. Uh, well, you would think uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, I, parts of Iowa, uh, uh, I would think, on, on yeah. the custom cattle feeders. Yeah, and even a little bit of Missouri as yes, well, I would think, ab- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, so. and, you know, that's good if if they think that that a sector has been left out. I mean, I think I don't think anybody would would, you know, quibble, you know, with that one. That's that's the good side of, you know, equity. Yeah. And we'll get a lot more into sectors that have been left out in the conversation with uh, Congressman Thompson here a little yes. bit, because that's, that's something that's important to him as well. In fact, they are offering up a counterproposal to some of the covid aid. Uh, that is being moved in the House right now probably doesn't stand a chance, but they are offering up yes. uh, their counterproposal today. But, but that, even though it's not going to go anywhere, I think if we did have another, probably will, another COVID aid package, if it's truly going to be bipartisan, which remains to be seen, at least some of those areas that he talks about in our interview would be some of the topics uh, that at least the Republicans will push, John. Yeah, and, and include in that uh, the extension of uh, WIP Plus or some other program to uh, impact those growers who were affected by the uh, derecho in Iowa and Illinois and some other disasters. And in the southeastern states, yes. And yeah. we, we had uh, Representative Cynthia uh, Axney on AgriTalk today, and we did ask her point blank uh, you know, what she had to think about the House Rules Committee yanking that amendment that she voted for. It was primarily a Republican amendment, but I'll give her credit she voted for that but the house democratic leadership stripped it and she really said the reason was from an offset financial perspective at least that's how 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 you know she phrased it but she thought that it would come back in another separate legislation sometime in in the new congress and she's probably right there because not just 2020 crops but we've already seen the tremendous impact in the in the in the citrus markets and in the in the poultry markets uh you know relative to the recent you know texas situation with the freezing and the energy you know related problems so we haven't heard the last issue on this one john yeah and she made it clear she's not letting go of that either that's going to continue to be a priority for her 
well, let's talk about that COVID aid package. As we said, you and I are talking here uh, just after two Eastern on Friday. Uh, they are still f- wrangling over this, both House and Senate side. We had the news last night that the uh, Senate parliamentarian said that the $15 minimum wage could not be included in the bill if they are going to go through budget reconciliation. However, uh, Senator Ron Wyden today saying that they have plan B for that, that they uh, now have a, a plan that would tax companies that do not raise employee pay to certain levels. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what impact that has on these negotiations going forward. Yeah. In fact, that was really being pushed by Bernie Sanders, the independent socialist from Vermont. And he said he wants to move forward that amendment to tax, to take tax deductions away from large, quote, profitable corporations that don't pay workers at least $15 an hour. There could be some procedural problems with that one as well. Let's get to the bottom line. Representative Axney told us that it looked like, well, this was as of this morning, that they would probably vote in the House as late as 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. And I'm not going to be shocked if it's even put until Saturday, John. Yeah. Mean, so, But I think it'll be done either to, late tonight or sometime, you know, Saturday. And it has the, you know, minority farmer, you know, provisions by ethnic, you know, classes, etc. in there. But it doesn't look like there's any major surprises, although some offsets were very uh, you know, interesting in the Republican counter package of what they took out of the Democratic <laughs> package. And we'll let, uh, you know, we'll let Congressman Thompson got, speak yeah. for himself on that one, but it's revealing. It, it, it is quite revealing, and I think uh, folks will uh, appreciate his conversation uh, about that. Um, a couple last things before we get into that conversation with Congressman Thompson. Um, one is that the House Ag Committee had their first real hearing yesterday. It focused on climate change. Um, your observations, Jim, did we learn anything substantial about um, where the Biden administration is is headed on climate mitigation for agriculture no there's just the full frontal uh you know attack on that topic but very few details and that's that's normal this thing is going to be multi-year multi-dimensional uh john but gt thompson told us while he definitely agrees that climate change is a problem he definitely and along with a number of other republicans disagree on the strategy so again that's another key issue that the ranking member talked to us about And Vilsack, in his presser this week, said it probably is going to take several administrations to get to the end zone relative to what the country really needs on climate change policy. I thought that was revealing. He talked about the need to look at the, you know, commodity credit corporation funding levels, etc. So he was pretty uh, open-ended when it came to, uh, you know, what's needed. I think uh, rightfully so he he's in the listing mode right now, John. Yeah. Which is a good thing. I mean, they, they should be, but at some point they're going to have to put together, put forward at least what they're thinking at this point. So people can start constructing around that and, and, and talking about, uh, what they want to modify around that right now, it's just a completely open black box with nothing really to grab onto and work from. 
Well, yeah, because farmers, I, I know we ask, uh, you know, G.T. Thompson, will there be any uh, climate change payments to what we call legacy or pioneer, you know, producers and ranchers who did the early work on best practices, uh, the the innovators in no-till, et cetera. And I'll, again, I'll, I'll let the audience listen to the response. We also, I think, ask ACNE that. But there should be some type of a payment if this thing is really going to get the support uh, the number of farm state lawmakers to vote for it because they're going to need it. Yeah, indeed. And I think USDA would be well served to say, hey, this isn't a final plan, but here is, here, here's where our thought process is now. Let's tear it apart. Let's build it up and, and see what we can construct out of that rather than the, the open-ended position that we're in at the moment. Yeah. In the agriculture letter that I wrote this week, the front page story, the full page story is on climate change. And the bottom line I had on that is with this whole of government approach, again, I've never seen an administration in my over 40 years that taken such a focus, a whole of government approach to an issue. But this is just not going to be one shot fits all. It's going to be a combination of executive orders, regulations, tax policies for tax incentives to say, uh, to, to deal with methane generators, uh, uh, et cetera. It's going to take a number of legislative uh, measures. So, you know, th there's your big comprehensive package. And also we're going to see the Federal Reserve get involved from an independent agency. And I've already told you the Treasury Department with Janet Yellen is big time looking on the focus at climate change as well. Well, in fact, the Climate 21 uh, plan that was part of the transition document uh, even calls for things like lower crop insurance rates if you take certain climate mitigation for the uh, best actions. practices. Yeah. Yes. For so, the best so practices. That, yeah. That tells you how how comprehensive they're looking at this. And speaking of crop insurance, you've got some some notes on that that we need to be watching in the coming week. Yeah, as of this morning, the spring crop insurance price was projected at $4.58 for corn. That's up from $3.88 last year and $11.86 for soybeans. That's up from 9 dollars and 17 cents the highest level since 2014 and 2013 respectively john so premiums will be up sharply the premiums will be up sharply but protection will be up sharply as well that's so. a good side that's a good thing yes and what we're telling uh, you know farmers and pro farmer you, the farm safety net selection can dictate some of your crop insurance options so be careful the supplemental coverage option or SEO can't be elected with the ag risk coverage the new enhanced coverage option or eco covers up to 95 percent and may be elected regardless of your safety net choice bottom line those crop insurance agents are fantastic so check with your crop insurance agent and also go out on your university decision, uh, you know, desk. Uh, uh, you know, Texas A&M has a good one. University of Illinois, your land grant college should have one where you can plug in your own variables, uh, you know, to decide. It's not an open and shut case. We cannot give a blanket recommendation. Yeah, it all depends on, on your situation. So yes. talk, to, consult those experts uh, and have them run the numbers different ways to find out which is going to be the best option for you. And uh, yeah, time quickly running out on that too. We're, what, next week is the deadline? It, it is, absolutely. Right. So you, you know, you've got time still, but do your homework. All right, indeed. All right, well, it's time for us, Jim. Let's turn it over to that conversation. Uh, here's our, our talk with Congressman uh, Glenn G.T. Thompson, the ranking member of the House Agriculture Committee. 
Well, Congressman Glenn G.T. Thompson, uh, ranking member of the House Agriculture Committee, we appreciate you making time for us uh, to get into some of the issues that uh, have been uh, mounting in the House Agriculture Committee. Um, and, you know, I want to get to the uh, new or the uh, the proposal you put forward, the Republicans put forward yesterday on uh, stimulus. But before we get into that, I think we really probably, Jim, need to talk about um the backstory of why this this came about and and congressman um if you could talk about some of the uh, the quite frankly partisanship that we've been seeing in the house agriculture committee um in just the first few weeks of the 117th congress yeah you know i'm in my 13th year serving on the house agriculture committee it was my really was my first pick um uh, obviously, I'm from Pennsylvania. It's our number one industry. It's uh, certainly the largest industry in my congressional district. And and I've, I've really, I've always, um, it's been great to serve on the Agriculture Committee because we, we really are known as the most bipartisan committee in Congress. But uh, unfortunately, um, uh, it hasn't been a great start in the 117th Congress. And it's largely, it's because of the influence, I, I think, of uh, the Democratic leadership. Um you know, really putting uh, putting controls and expectations on my colleagues across the aisle in agriculture. We, we did a eight and a half hour uh, uh, budget reconciliation markup where we presented uh, the Republicans presented a lot of different amendments, um, good amendments. These are amendments that you know that for, that would be uh, that were great for rural broadband, for for biofuels, ethanol industry, for uh, disaster assistance. I mean, just across the board. These are these are rural America agriculture amendments that, quite frankly, would have served all the districts of uh, you know the of the twenty seven Democratic members on the committee, and uh, and uh, we're twenty three right now. We have an opening we're we're holding because there's a, a race in Louisiana. But you know, what would be what will be the twenty four seats on the Republican side? And they were just uh, almost without exception, just. Um, even though the the talk was that we love the amendments, we just can't vote for them. And so I've never really experienced that kind of a unilateral start, um, that kind of partisanship in the agriculture committee. Now, I'm I'm hoping we quickly get that, uh, they quickly get that out of our system. I, I love working with Chairman David Scott. He's, you know, he's been a colleague of mine for 13 years. He's a statesman. Uh, he's a gentleman. And uh, and I know that we can uh, continue to do some really great bipartisan work. But it's been kind of a rocky start to the 117th Congress. You know, Congressman, don't you think a, a key example of this lack of, you know, part, of lack of bipartisanship is when you initially had the amendment on WIP Plus for 2020 crops approved with Cynthia uh, Axney, you know, you know, the Democrat voting for it. And even my sources at the time said, watch it. The House leadership is going to strike that. And that's exactly what happened. That's a pretty low blow, isn't it? Yeah, we uh, yeah, it, it was, especially when we know how important that amendment was to to so many around the country. You know, we're, you know, we're talking agriculture. There's no industry that's more weather and disaster and, and really disaster sensitive. And and, uh, um, you know, we and it wasn't even House leadership. We we probably spent an hour in that markup of of uh, the other side of the aisle trying to figure out how to undo a properly recorded amendment. Um so, but in the end, we we held the amendment. We uh, we put our marker out there. We showed that uh, you know we showed that uh, there's um, you know the types of things that we're working on are 
are really positive for uh, they're the right things for agriculture and for farm families, ranch families and rural America. In fact, I've rolled uh, many of those. Uh, we've actually uh, created our own uh, um, agriculture uh, Republicans COVID relief and recovery plan. And a lot of it is made up of those amendments that unfortunately, uh, other than the disaster, uh, the whip whip plus uh amendment that that did pass out of committee and unfortunately it looks like uh, the democratic leadership killed in the rules committee you know we've rolled all that into our own plan that we're putting forward and i'm going to be offering that an amendment uh very shortly this morning to the rules committee i don't have high expectations that they're changing their attitude and their demeanor but i know that we need to keep working and pressing hard uh, for farm and ranch families and this answers the question, does it not, your proposal uh, that rather than complain about what happened, what would you do? You know, this is a detailed on what, you know, you and your your, your colleagues want to do, right? No, it, it, it really is. It, uh, um, you know, our amendment, does, and it doesn't take anything away from the Democrats' plan. It just simply fills in the gaps where we feel that uh, where the Democrats failed. Um you know, uh, the you know, the the agriculture Republicans COVID relief and recovery plan is essentially what the Republican half of the budget reconciliation process would have looked like if we've just been allowed to come to the table, if we would have been consulted at all. And it's um, and, it, it, you know, it really is astounding that, you know, despite the wish list of political giveaways, including a, a tunnel for Mrs. Pelosi and a a a, a, a bridge for Mr. Schumer, I'm not sure how that's COVID related. Um, the uh, uh, that uh, you know, you know, the Democrats somehow managed to forget the backbone of our country, which you know we know that's farm families and rural communities who who provide the food and the fiber and the energy resources, all the things that are essential in life. They really come from rural America. Well, what's the bottom line on the COVID package? High expectations that the House today will will clear their package, but but isn't it really up to whatever the Senate parliamentarian signs off on on the Senate package? And isn't that the real coming COVID package that will be approved? That that's correct. Right now, it's about almost two trillion trillion dollars. It's amazing. You know that uh, less than eight uh, percent of that two trillion dollars is is COVID related, even though this is called a, a COVID relief bill. You know, it's just packed full of, uh, of uh, Pelosi payoffs. I don't know what else to call it, giveaways. Um, uh, you know, 8% of it, are, I think, are th <laughs> around 8%, no more than 8% are things that we could probably all agree upon. And we could, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I will say the offset, because uh, the, the, the amendment I'm offering today is fully offset. And it's offset by cutting back on those uh, transportation grants that were put into the bill to pay for Mr. Schumer's bridge and Mrs. Pelosi's tunnel. Um, so we wanted to do, you know, we want to put forward our plan in a, in a fiscally responsible way. And, and we've done that. I, I, I'm not optimistic, obviously, at all. You're right. This is probably going to pass out of the House today or tomorrow. Um, now, I will say the parliamentarian uh, in the Senate did weigh in, in my understanding, and they did strike out the, the $15 minimum wage, but it's still just packed full of uh, just awful things uh, that aren't really designed to help the American people dealing with this coronavirus. Um, and then it will come down to the Senate. You know, the Senate's going to have to pass this with, uh, they'll, they'll be able to pass this because it's budget reconciliation with 51 votes. But, you know, I've worked with some of these senators and, and a couple of the Democratic senators. Um, um, and I, you know what, I, I'm going to be shocked if, 
if they support this, given uh, the waste and everything that's in there, you know, these these are senators that represent states with huge rural areas. But we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens in the Senate next. You know, in your package, Congressman, you mentioned the rural broadband. And I have a personal favor to ask you that farmers and ranchers have asked me over the years, going back to the Obama administration, then the Trump administration, and now this administration, this taxpayers have, have put forth a lot of money, billions of dollars. Is there a way you can ask for an accounting of where those prior fundings actually went, because some farmers suspect that that may be uh, you know, getting into other areas of the state. Yeah, and I, yeah, we, uh, uh, the the Republicans of any uh, ag committee as a whole in the last uh, last farm bill, we agreed with that. We uh, we really felt that there was a lot of this money that wasn't really being reaching, you know, our farmhouses, our fields, uh, those, you know, those. Uh, um, you know, those last mile uh, areas where we have no connectivity, you know, they were being used to rebuild systems that we'd already invested in in the past. And maybe, you know, obviously that, you know, and we, we know that this is a difficult issue because of how, how this technology has evolved so quickly. And we know today uh, that we need to fill the digital divide. And that last mile where we don't have connectivity or, quite frankly, we don't have sufficient connectivity to be able to handle the platforms of uh, the broadband with, you know, so that we can do precision agriculture, so we can do commerce, online sales, and so that we can have online access to healthcare and, and to education. So, uh, you know, I, I certainly have heard that. I hear that from the farmers and ranchers. Uh, you know, the other thing is perhaps we need to take a look at not doing this but we made a lot of progress, um, and I've seen that progress. We've got a long ways to go, and I'm not sure the piecemeal approach that we've been using is the best way to do it. You know, when you think about it, we invest in, you know, broadband connectivity kind of snuck up on us, right? I mean, it, it really did. Ten years ago, we said connectivity. That would have been, uh, even ten years ago, that might have been uh, Sunday dinner with the family coming together. <laughs> and, and um and so uh, connectivity, what we how we've invested in that, we've done it kind of in silos, uh, you know, the not just Department of Agriculture, which has a rural utility service, very important to connectivity. But you have the, you know, the Treasury Department, Department of Health, Department of Defense, Department of Education. Everybody's kind of been pursuing this, uh, this connectivity. And that's not the most efficient way to get things done. You know, if we'd have taken that approach back in the 1930s uh, with the rural uh, before the Rural Electrification Act, I think there's these rural parts of this country will still be in the dark without electricity. So it, I think it may be time that we get focused and, and, and actually fill this digital divide. Yeah, Congressman Jim mentions that broadband provision in the amendment you plan to introduce later today. Uh, can you walk us through the other provisions of that amendment? Uh, honored to, actually. Thank you for asking. You know, we're, we're looking for, uh, uh, obviously, the broadband um, and uh uh, that's uh, that amendment is eight hundred million dollars on top of what we invest now uh, to address the urgent needs of rural broadband connectivity. Uh, there's a, a billion dollars in there to support our biofuels producers who've been dramatically impacted by this pandemic. I mean, the, the you know people just didn't travel for the majority of 2020, and what that did to uh, what that has done to our, our biofuels producers. Uh, there's 2.1 billion in there for rural health clinics, hospitals, public safety facilities, schools, and other essential community facilities. Um, we've got uh, a, a 300 million dollars to improve access to USDA services 
to uh, impacted by COVID-19. We more now more than ever, we, you know, we need those NRCS folks, those FSA. Uh, we need them on the fields. We need them sitting down in the farmhouses. We need to be helping, you know, they're navigators that can help our farmers and ranchers make the best possible um, decisions for their operations. Uh, we have money in there for to expand farm safety education. That's obviously safety is is always incredibly important, um, and that that extends it actually to our agricultural processors. Um, and then part of this is doesn't cost a thing. It just is really directing the Biden administration to get off their butts and on freeze this coronavirus food assistance program round three, uh, round one and round two have been instrumental. We know that works. You know, this is not brain surgery. Uh, um, and, I, you know, and I've got somewhat of a promise from Secretary Vilsack now that he's confirmed that, you know, that he knows that this is important as well. We've had those discussions. You know, it does extend some disaster relief for producers impacted for losses in 2020. Uh, and again, uh, as I said, it, uh, you know, the pay for the offset for that, it reprioritizes some of those transportation uh, grant funding um, away from perhaps out of uh, a tunnel in San outside of San Francisco and a bridge in New York. Right, and, you know, as we talked about that WIP plus extension amendment uh, that was killed by the Rules Committee, obviously that uh, assistance for the derecho uh, in mm -hmm. Iowa and Illinois and some other disasters in 2020 is needed. Um, is the is the Ag Committee going to be revisiting that at some point? We we will. And in fact, we've we've put this within the disaster, you know, the disaster, uh, some of the disaster relief as well. Yeah, those those states, Illinois, Iowa, uh, significant damage back in, uh, it was in the fall. Um, and, you know, not just to uh, uh, crop fields, but uh, to, uh, you know, some of the buildings, barns. And, um, and that's, we were so pleased and quite frankly, so excited. You know, uh, this budget reconciliation bill was marked up in every, uh, almost every committee in Congress. And uh, I think the Agriculture Committee was the, uh, you know, was the first one to, the Republicans in the Agriculture Committee were the first ones to get an amendment adopted. It was, uh, uh, which was great. Uh, it was great for my member. You know, I have such great members. Uh, I, have to, I have to mention just real briefly, we've, you know, there's 50 new freshman Republicans that came into the House in 117th. You know, their, their number one committee choice was agriculture. Really? Uh, which was pretty impressive. You don't know, we rarely see that. And so, you know, that one of the hardest things I've had to do with the steering committee is, was the seating on the agriculture committee and, and picking from all that interest. And, and we do, we have great members that are experienced or they're, they're passionate. They're just dedicated to rural American agriculture on my side of the aisle. And here's the good news. There are quite a few Republican freshmen who didn't make it onto the committee and they're going to be agriculture advocates. And, and I'm going to make sure that through our membership services, we're working with them as well so we can uh, that they're doing their best for agriculture back home in their districts. And that should help you in the coming new farm bill debate whenever that happens, right? You, you bet. I don't expect it. I expect it in 2023. There are some that are a little more pessimistic about that. But, you know, I think it, uh, we have a responsibility that the farm bill has such an impact on rural America, obviously farmers and ranchers, but rural communities from all aspects, all aspects uh, that we have a responsibility to reauthorize in a timely manner. And what are your uh, priorities going into the 117th Congress for the uh, Ag Committee? Well, it starts out with this CFAP 3. 
uh, getting this out the door. We voted on that. Congress approved that in December 21st. Uh, President Trump uh, signed that on December 27th. Uh, we've uh, USDA is as well experienced with um, getting that money uh, uh, out to the farmers, uh, producers, and and now there's opportunities for processors. Uh, so that's that's obviously is number one at this point. Uh, number two, we have to learn the lessons from 2020. Uh, what were the lessons that we take away in the disruptions in the agriculture and food supply chains um, so we can build resiliency? Um, obviously, markets are always a priority, uh, both uh, expanding domestic markets, agriculture commodities, but quite frankly, international markets, because our international markets are vital for um, not just the economy, but quite frankly, for the climate, too. Uh, you know, the, the number one thing that we could do to improve, uh, reduce global emissions around the world would be to produce more American agriculture commodities because we're so efficient and we use innovation and, and science and technology and export those uh, to other countries. It's a win-win. Uh, it, it creates a healthy environment, but it creates a healthy economy, too. Um, and you know, do, you, do, you see changes? do you see any changes relative to what we know that's in that December 21st past, you know, CFAP uh, 3? Because the Democrats uh, are given signals they, they, you know, they want some changes. Well, uh, it would have to come back. Uh, you know, if they were going to make changes to that, it should have been made. They should have put it into this package that they're jamming down hmm. the throats of uh, not just Republicans, but but American families all across this country. So um, there, there may be some different interpretations. There may be some different administration of of the CFAP three, obviously under uh, with Secretary Vilsack, um, you know, in the Biden administration. But I, um, I think largely, I'm expecting um, with the coronavirus food assistance program three that uh, you know that the lanes stay the same. They may take a different approach. Uh, they they may take a different interpretation. But you know what, we're going to do uh, great oversight. I. I've got a long history of working with Secretary Vilsack. I did that for eight years when he was in the Obama administration. Uh, I was a big fan of his work on, and followed him closely. And we worked together with, when he was at the Dairy Export Council for four years. Uh, we're not going to agree on on everything and where we don't. I intend to be the loyal opposition. I already had that conversation with the with the secretary. We're going to advance um, uh, our uh uh, our policies that we know are good for rural America are good for farm and ranch families. But where we can work together, uh, we're going to do that uh, to hopefully get some get a lot of bipartisan things done. But but we're, we are going to play uh, our oversight uh, function and responsibilities uh, very diligently. You know, both you and uh, Chairman David Scott, uh, neither one of you new to the Ag Committee, but both new to your positions. Yeah. How do you see that relationship uh working forward um, as you take the Ag Committee forward this year? Well, I have a lot of respect for for Chairman Scott, and I get a sense he does for me as well. We've we've worked together for 13 years. Uh, he's got he's got a reputation for bi uh, great bipartisan work, not just in the Agriculture Committee, but quite frankly, on his other committee financial services that he serves on. And and uh, and that's my style. I mean, I there's not a bill that I write or introduce that I I that I don't make uh, bipartisan. I, you know, I, I, I welcome people to the table. I think that's important. That's why I was so discouraged with this budget rec reconciliation, because I think it's important no matter what, everybody's allowed at the table. Um, and I also don't think you need to compromise your principles and your values, 
But if we start with just what we can agree upon, that can become the basis for some really co- good cost-effective solutions. And I know that's what that's what I saw the outcome of that in the 2014 Farm Bill and the 2018 Farm Bill that I worked on. You know, I noticed Vilsack, when he gave his first presser yesterday, have has used the word that many Democrats are using now, equity versus equality. And also, he didn't say food security. He changed the phrase to nutrition security. And so I'm seeing a pattern here. Isn't that social engineering? Yeah, it's very much social engineering. And and you know what? And it's transparent. You you saw through that. I saw through that. And I think the American people see through that as well. I mean, it really kind of relates to the one of the agriculture um, uh, uh, uh parts of this this budget reconciliation bill that came out of the Agriculture Committee uh, for socially disadvantaged farmers. And we all know that there's, you know, decades ago, there was there, there was a record, a terrible instance of, of some discrimination where, you know, farmers of color were not, um, black farmers uh, and perhaps others were, you know, were, weren't, weren't getting to the front of the line on different things. But that was, you know, that was, uh, uh, there was a judicial process to that. There was a finding and there was significant payouts decades ago on that. But, but, and this bill approaches um, socially disadvantaged farmers. Um, but what it says was, if you fall into one of six classifications and you're a farmer, you don't have to show any, and it speaks to the equity is why I'm bringing this up. Um, you don't have to show that there was any evidence that you've ever been discriminated against. You just, you know, you, you just have the heritage, your family tree shows that, uh, you're uh, uh, African American, Native American, Alaskan American, Asian, Hispanic, or Pacific Islander with our territories, um, uh, then your your USDA loans, uh, whether they're direct from FSA or guaranteed through our credit unions and our community banks and our farm credit, uh, they are forgiven at a rate of 120 percent. So your loans are forgiven, and you'll get a check for 20% of those loans. And you don't have, there's no evidence required that you were ever discriminated against. Now, the um, the interesting part of that is that actually USDA did, does have a policy on socially uh, disadvantaged farmers because of past history, but it's not six classifications, it's seven. And the seventh is women. And the Democrats let the women uh, out of that particular uh, um uh, that that part of the legislation. So, I mean, it just, um, uh, it, you know, it just speaks to what they're trying to do is really is just their equity, political correctness uh, versus good, sound public policy, uh, good agriculture policy that's uh, that's good for uh, uh, rural America. You know, my goal is, uh, you know, I want I work hard to be the voice for rural America and all rural rural Americans. Well, this segues to your comments, uh, which uh, many people thought were spot on, on climate change at the committee's first or hybrid hearing on climate change. Can can you go through that with you and the the chairman? Because, you know, you agree climate change is a problem. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, yesterday's hearing on climate change uh, was 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 great. Uh, and it's it's Im- and the impact of climate on our rural communities and on agriculture in particular. Uh, you know, there's no industry more sensitive to climate change, weather, weather patterns, you know, all the things that kind of manifest itself as, as climate. Right. 
Um, and we, we had a great opportunity yesterday to hear from uh, a number of experts, uh, five in particular. We had a, um, uh, you know, uh, we had uh, uh, a good friend of mine, Zippy Duval from Georgia, um, a president of the American Farm Bureau. Uh, we had uh, uh, Jim Cantori, who just kind of talked about weather patterns. He's with the Weather Channel. I know Zippy, or I know uh, Jim because he was uh, he was actually honored at uh, in my district. I have Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and we have the, the Weather Museum. So he was put into the Weather Hall of Fame. Um, um, and he's uh, another great candidate. We had uh, uh, Mr. Schellenberger from uh, um, uh, from California, Berkeley, California, who wrote a book, Apocalypse Never. He's an environmentalist, but he recognizes that what you know, what agriculture, what we do in, ag in rural America is really offsetting uh, greenhouse gases. And he agrees with me that we shouldn't be talking about this as a climate crisis or in terms of being a climate, what are my words I use, climate crier. And we shouldn't be climate deniers either because we know the climate has changed uh, over the course of recorded human history and before. But we ought to be climate uh, uh we ought to be climate solvers. And so this was, uh, you know, the question really isn't whether or not climate change is real. The question is not whether to reduce emissions. The question is, how do we best approach it? You know, we, we know the Earth's temperature is rising. And I, I trust the science that says global industrial activity has contributed. But quite frankly, um, uh, doomsday scenarios are are part of the problem, not the solution. And... Um, and, and I believe, and I've seen the evidence, well, you know, the wholeheartedly that conservative climate solutions using science, innovation, technology, that's what works for, for maintaining uh, climate competitive in the United States. It's amazing when you look at land-based universe, uh, land, land-based solutions. So that's, that's, that's agriculture, and that's all the things that we do with precision agriculture, uh, cover crops, conservation practices, um, uh, uh, past livestock pasturing, uh, you know, we've the science is showing now that livestock and pastures actually stimulates uh, root growth, and that means that that pasture lands are great carbon sinks now, it's absorbing more carbon. Certainly, healthy forest practices, trees are a crop, um, uh, or as I like to say, whether down south where they like to plant them in a straight row, or up home where I guess we have free range trees, um, they're. You know, the well-maintained forest, which means you're harvesting on a regular basis, you have multiple generations, are huge carbon sinks. And in fact, it's been shown there was a study, um, I think it was 2017, uh, was one data year I looked at. Um, with land-based uh, solutions, we actually take um, uh, over 600 gigatons. Uh, now, I don't know how big a gigaton is, but it sounds really big to me, uh, of carbon out of the air. In fact, we sequester so much that that land-based solutions, including agriculture, which includes forestry, um, is carbon neutral uh, of what greenhouse gases are emitted. And there's enough sequestration beyond that, you know, that we, that year anyways, it was about 11.1% of an offset that could be used for manufacturing or power generation or transportation, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, Congressman, a frequent question at this week's Top Producer Summit was whether or not in the realm of coming policy relative to climate change. Will those farmers and ranchers, what uh, you know, a lot of people call pioneers or legacy, who did no-till before it was popular and other best practices, will they be, will they get a compensatory payment as well, uh, you know, once this process unfolds? 
you know what? You know we have to. We'll, we'll see. I, I think a lot of our farmers are doing the right things with uh, uh, no-till, uh, pers- uh, healthy soils approaches. Um, again, the the use of uh, different types of technology uh, for dealing with residuals. Um, you know, I think number one, we we shouldn't be punishing those. Uh, you know those those farmers, those ranchers, and those processors as well yes. um, for, for making the investments and in, in doing the right things. Um, the, uh, so, you know, we'll say we, that's the kind of thing that we need to do. You know, we really have adopted, right, incentive-based voluntary conservation practices. And so we should figure out how we, how we incentivize those type adoption, continue adoption of that type of science and technology and practices going forward, because that really is a solution. Uh, And here's my goal. Obviously, we do the right things when it comes to uh, conservative climate solutions. Um, We can um, and, and we're able to with the goal of not just a healthier environment, but a healthier economy um, that some of these mitigation factors that that farmers may be using could somehow should and there already are in some situations this is occurring um you know become revenue lines supplemental revenue lines for our farmers and ranchers congressman we can hit one more one last topic before you have to go um that is that the Biden administration has put forward their comprehensive immigration reform package there's a bill in the house um, you know, eight-year path to citizenship. Uh, farm workers get a, a fast track in there. No expansion of H-2A um, calls for the end of the ag exemption for overtime. Uh, those are some of the highlights. What, what is your reaction to that bill, and will you be seeking any changes to it? Oh, you bet. I'll be seeking changes and alternatives. Uh, you know, when you, uh, at least what I've seen so far of it, when you wait, it's not, uh, the, it's, a, it's, it's a net harm uh, for rural America um, and for the agriculture industry, obviously we uh, uh, we we know no changes H two A. We know that H two A doesn't work for uh, largely for year round um, um, agriculture practices, uh, dealing with uh, things like dairy, livestock, uh, other other year round commodities uh, that are out there. Um, you know, we also you know we also know that. Uh, you know, that's such a cumbersome process. Sometimes till the process happens with the H2A, um, the the planting season, the harvesting season, we've missed the sweet spot of where we need it for agriculture. So there is definite needs are, are there. The um, I don't, you know, government uh, and the Biden administration is continuing to do what, what the Obama administration did. I mean, they want to control what wages are paid, how many workers are are brought into the country. You know, I think one of the biggest problems when it comes to agriculture is we administer these programs through the Department of Labor. Uh, Department of Labor just really looks at numbers. Uh, we, we need a, an ag workforce immigration policy that is administered, I believe, through USDA, because that's where the professionals are when it comes to knowing what it takes to make sure that this country has the food and the fiber that we need to maintain food security, but also to have a prosperous uh, a robust rural economy. Um, I'm. Uh, we're going to be doing. Uh, you know, there is a proposal that's uh, 
being put forward once again. It's the bill that passed out of the House last time. I kind of held my nose and voted for it in the 116th Congress. There were some good parts in it. At the time, I was really concerned, had some concerns, but I also knew it was in the 116th Congress, it was the only train leaving the station. And I was counting on the Senate to improve it. Well, the Senate's now 50-50. Uh, with with Vice President Harris making up the difference. I don't have as much confidence in the Senate. So um, uh, so we're taking a step, though. We're, uh, we want to come to the table. And so early next week, we're going to be bringing in one of the sponsors of that bill and staff uh, to brief all of our Republican members and, and our staff on the House Agriculture Committee. Uh, we don't have direct jurisdiction, uh, obviously, over immigration policy. It doesn't come out of our committee. But we have primary concern about it because uh, agriculture workforce is a huge need and it's a huge threat to food security. So um, House Agriculture Republicans are going to be at the table. We also have uh, a bill that was formally put forward by Mr. Yoho that I was very excited about. It really didn't gain traction in the 116th Congress for the House floor or the Judiciary Committee. Uh, but we're going to be revisiting that. If we're lucky, maybe we can bring different parts of that together, have a really good, strong bipartisan bill uh, for agriculture workforce that actually works for all of our commodities, all of our farmers, all of our ranchers. Um, and, you know, we can build a build a coalition to, to, uh, to get this done, because we know this is an urgent need. And Congressman, doesn't the tight fit in the Senate actually at least potentially increase the odds that they're going to have to listen to farm state lawmakers from both political parties to get their vote? No, yeah, I think so. Um, um, I'm, you know, I'm, um, you know, I'm kind of excited, I guess, about the, the, uh, the narrow margins in the House and Senate. Um, I think once uh, once the Democrats get this partisan stuff out, unilateral things out of the way, like budget reconciliation, um, I would think that would that would mean that we would be in a better position that only strongly bipartisan things will pass. I I I don't believe that um, that the Senate I may be wrong. There's a couple senators, Democratic senators. I don't think they're going to agree to blow up the filibuster rule, which means anything that passes out of the Senate, it's not going to be 50 plus one. Uh, after this budget reconciliation is done, uh, it's going to be 60 votes. And I think that's uh, with all that combined, uh, it just, yeah, we should be in a position where we should only be focused on good, strong bipartisan work. And that means welcoming everybody to the table. Um, I only hope that Mrs. Pelosi gets that memo. Um, So we'll see. (laughs) That that, uh, bill you said uh, passed in the 116th Congress, um, was that the one put was Farm Workforce Act or something like that put forward by the National Milk Producers Federation that sought expansion of H two A? It was the one that was put forward by Mrs. Lofgren uh, from California. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah so what what changes are you going to be seeking in that then when it when it's revisited? Well, you know, we're going to kind of reserve that, I think, largely until after we get this briefing. And we, we uh, just like your show, we'll, we'll do a deep dive on this policy <laughs> and ask the tough questions. I can tell you right off the top, first two things I'm going to ask about is, number one, I think farmers and ranchers ought to determine how much workforce they need. And that shouldn't be dictated by the government. You know, it, we should trust the people in the fields, on the farms, on the in the pastures and ranch lands for that. And number two, you know, having a set payment dollar amount per hour uh, dictated by the government. You know, there's so much diversity in economies of scale and and the economics of between every commodity. That just uh, that 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 broad brush, that cookie cutter approach to setting 
setting payment rates doesn't doesn't work. You know, the, I anticipate if we had that, um, you know, some commodities are going to be desperately needing workforce. But because of what's going on, they can't afford to pay that. It just, you know, the uh, the economics doesn't doesn't support it. So those are those are at least two of the things I, I'm going to be drilling down uh, deeply with this particular bill and and checking uh, and just checking my concerns uh, against it. Real quick, uh, you know, Congressman, do you support the House move to end the ban on earmarks? Because some people say uh, that when you look at the history, that could, if if done right, that could actually increase the number of votes for some bills, such as in the infrastructure and transportation area. Yeah, you know, we had earmarks my first two years. I was elected in 2008, and the last year for earmarks was 2009. And two, uh, well, yeah, we had earmarks. Yeah, we had two earmarks in 2009, 2010, and they went away in 2011. I, I thought that we were we were actually doing them fairly well. There were some other improvements I'd like to make. I like the fact that you had to publicly disclose earmark requests, and we were required to put those on our website so that our constituents could see what the requests were. Um, and then I like the fact that, quite frankly, we had to had to disclose those what earmarks that we were supporting in the end and putting forward. I, I think transparency is a great sanitizer to some of the um, some of the corruption in the in the in the past. Uh, call it corruption, call it bad government, whatever. Call it fiscal irresponsibility. Um, there were a few other things I would have liked to see. I, um, I I think if I had the ability to to uh, uh, and had the control to be able to revisit this. I, uh, if you've got a request, because I, we, you know, we are responsible. We're responsible for, um, uh, you know, to our constituents, right? And, and there's not a dollar the federal government hasn't spent that's not earmarked. Earmarking to me is 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 the payable two line on these federal checks that, that go out for projects and to fund things. And we can either let the the executive branch do every one of those. Or we can exercise our constitutional responsibility that we have of fundamentally being responsible to putting the, you know, the appropriations uh, 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 bill together. Um, and, you know, I, I would also, though, would would require that, you know, that if you've got, a, a, uh, in addition to being transparent and posting them so that your constituents can see what you're putting forward, I would say that, you know, you you need to submit your request at the subcommittee level. That way, it's scrutinized and voted on in, in the appropriations subcommittee and in the full appropriations committee. And that's both the House and the Senate. So there's four votes already. Um, and then, you know, and then it goes to both the Senate and the, and the House floor. Uh, so there's there's six times these things could be voted on. Um, wow, that's uh, a retro look how a bill becomes a law, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then and in the end, no airdrops. Yes, no, no airdrop. Yeah. That's where the abuses have really come in the you know in the uh, in the conference report. So, but those are just my ideas on because I do think we have a constitutional responsibility, and I, I I'll be honest with you, I think the House should should do its constitutional responsibility in terms of instead of turning that over to uh, any executive branch. I don't care what party's in the White House. Yeah. Congressman Glenn G.T. Thompson, ranking member of the House Agriculture Committee, you've been incredibly generous with your time. We greatly appreciate it and uh, offer an open invitation. Uh, welcome here to join us anytime here on D.C. Signal the Noise. Uh, Jim, John, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I uh, look forward to coming back on the show with you. 
Jim, remarkable conversation there with Congressman Thompson. Um, and, and again, as I said, I greatly appreciate his time oh, and generosity there in, in talking with yeah. us. And I'm sure he will be back with us much more uh, over the, the course of the 117th Congress. Yeah, and I think I got him right. I thought a real good nugget in our interview, John, was when he revealed that of the, what did he say, 50 new members uh, yeah. in the House? The uh, to be on the agriculture committee was the number one choice of members. You haven't heard that for a while. Now that's interesting. Well, I, and you know, I didn't get a chance to ask him exactly what was driving that. But you know, from from my perspective, I think it's a couple things. One is that food and nutrition have become so central in what Congress is doing right now. And number two, I, I think the notion of the historically bipartisan nature of the agriculture committee is enticing to people yes and probably volatility because as farmers and ranchers we've seen it the past uh, week in texas it just you, you can be going really good and all of a sudden uh, you have to worry about your life on that one let alone what it did you know to uh, the citrus industries and the uh, the uh, you know chicken you know broilers uh, etc so uh, the, the volatility is increasing in agriculture not decreasing and that's when you have to have good effective policy and of course with climate change too uh, agriculture is not going to be like it was in 2009 recall that it was the ag and food sector that defeated the push for cap and trade this time Right. They know that the, the atmosphere has changed and they want a seat at the table. And that's why you've seen a wholesale change in uh, uh, on this topic. Yeah, indeed. Um, quick note, thanks to Theo and comments for reminding me that we've got a couple weeks yet for the crop insurance deadline. It's March 15th. So yes. yeah, thanks for that reminder there. Um, and as we always wrap it up, Jim, where we're going to be watching for Signal in the coming week. Well, I'm already getting emails. When uh, is a nominee for the U.S. Trade Rep, Catherine Tai? When is the Senate Finance Committee going to uh, vote on her nomination? Uh, it could be, you know, next week. And then once she gets out of the committee, they can quickly move it to the floor. She's a non-controversial uh, nominee. Uh, she had her hearing this week, and she really did a good job. Uh, she answered. She dealt with the dairy issue with Canada, Mexico issues. She's persnickety on the, those. She knows enforcement uh, is key. She gave a little more oxygen to mandatory country of origin labeling. That doesn't mean that it's coming back, but she acknowledged that it had to be within the scripture of the World Trade Organization. Well, that, so, well that's it. Everybody that's voicing, voicing support for it acknowledges that they don't know how to do it to get around know. WTO. They yeah. don't know. Although if there's anyone that could write the language, it could probably be her because she's steeped in that uh, Byzantine uh, way to write when you're uh, writing, you know, <laughs> you know, trade legislation, right. let alone WTO jingle. Yeah, but I couldn't think of anybody who would be better for that position right now because of the position that we're in with China than Catherine Tai. I mean, she seems to be a perfect fit for where we are headed in trade negotiations right now. Yeah, truly. She speaks uh, you know, fluent Mandarin Chinese, and she's been through. Uh, the. She's worked at the U.S. Trade Rep's office before. Mm -hmm. She's worked up on the Hill. She went through, was a principal uh, worker on the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. If that's not background, I don't know what is. Indeed. All right. We'll be watching that. We'll be watching to see if we get any more signals on CFAP money in this coming week from sure. uh, USDA. All right, Jim, as always, uh, appreciate the time and okay. thanks for joining us this week. Again, 
on DC Signal to Noise.